This evening we're continuing our overview of the Old Testament book titled Nehemiah. With this as the focus, if you would like to open our Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 5, and as you make your way to the fifth chapter of Nehemiah, uh, I, I just want to take a moment to remind you that Nehemiah was the man that the Lord raised up to lead the nation of Israel into a time of political revival. And, and now I realize, that having said that, that you know, many people do their best to, uh, to avoid the topic of politics. Uh, I know many people that uh, it's just the minute, you know, any topic of politics comes up, it's just like they're, they're, the, the eyes glaze over, they tune out, and they just escape the conversation as soon as possible. And, and you know, one reason for this is simply because, you know, dis- discussions about politics, uh, they quickly become divisive conversations, and, and, and t- you know, discussions about politics can quickly divide people into, into a couple different camps. And, and, and so according to, to, to one survey from 2020, 62% of Americans are afraid to share their political point of view because they don't want to offend those who would disagree with them. Uh, just think about that for a moment. 62% of Americans. That's a huge number of Americans who are too afraid of, of offending people uh, over a political point of view, and so they just don't talk about politics at all. And, and you know, one of the old sayings is that, you know, one of the things that you don't discuss in polite company is religion and politics. And, and I'm probably the most impolite person you know then, because I always talk about religion and politics. So, <laughs> but, uh, you know, the, as we consider the 62% of Americans who are afraid to share their political point of view uh, for fear of offending people. Uh, what's even worse is that there are many, many Christians who, who don't think Christians ought to be talking about politics at all. Uh, and, and many, many Christians in the church today who, who think that, you know, pastors shouldn't be talking about politics and these sorts of things. And, and you know, as a result, we wouldn't be surprised to learn that many Christians have embraced political positions that are completely unbiblical. One reason why? Well, it's because many pastors are afraid to address political issues from the pulpit. And, you know, it's sad to say that the church is now filled with pastors who have embraced this idea that it's better to simply avoid political polarization uh, than to talk about politics and, and potentially uh, divide the congregation. Uh, and, and with that, you know, you know, these pastors fail to realize that we've actually been called to teach the whole counsel of God. That, that's what we've been called to do teach the whole counsel of God. And so as I teach line by line, verse by verse through the Bible, I'm inevitably going to come across passages that are very politically charged, like tonight. And, and there are chapters and verses in the Bible that present us uh, with a biblical position on political issues that every Christian ought to embrace. And as we consider the way that Nehemiah himself was sent to go and fix the political system there in Jerusalem, well, we would do well to consider the role that Christians should play here in this day and age when it comes to the political process here in our own country. Well, with this as the focus, if you would, let's continue to make our way through Nehemiah's account. We find ourselves here in Nehemiah chapter 5. I want to begin reading there at verse 1. Here we learn that uh, there was a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brethren. For there were those who said, we, our sons, and our daughters are many, therefore let us get grain that we may eat and live. There were also some who said, we have mortgaged our lands and vineyards and houses that we might buy grain because of the famine. There were also those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our lands and vineyards. 
Yet now our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren, our children as their children. And indeed, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have been brought into slavery. It is not in our power to redeem them, for other men have our lands and vineyards. And I became very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. Now here in the beginning of this chapter, we find the people there in Jerusalem informing Nehemiah about the political corruptions that were taking place there in the land of promise. That's right, the the political leaders uh, who failed to rebuild the border walls between the time uh, of the initial return from Babylon up until the day when Nehemiah arrived, those political leaders who had failed to secure the border walls of Jerusalem, these were the same political leaders who were allowing the people to suffer in poverty as inflation and taxation forced many into indentured servitude, or in other words, slavery. And it's sad to say that not much has changed between then and today. You might not know this, but the political leaders who themselves have failed to secure our southern border are the same political leaders who put forth policies that have resulted in a massive spike of inflation. And and according to the latest numbers, inflation in August rose a shocking 8.3% over the same month from last year. And then when we start drilling down into the data without any fracking, you know, what we discover, what we discover is that households are now spending 13.5% more, 13.5% more than for the same food that we were buying last year. Yeah, we're spending 13.5% more on the same amount of food. And and not only that, but listen, electricity prices rose 15.8% when compared to this time last year. So so the 8.3% inflation rate is is really covering a a bunch of factors. But when when we zero in on these two, it's higher than 8.3%. At the same time, we're also paying uh, more in taxes Uh, than uh, ever in our lifetime. As a matter of fact, the Bureau of Labor Statistics just released a report which helps us to see that Americans spent more on taxes in 2021 than on food, clothing, and healthcare combined. It's amazing. Meanwhile, the government assures us that all they need is another $700 billion, you know, in order to reduce the inflation that they created with the initial overspending. And, and all that to fix the, uh, you know, the lockdowns that they forced on us. Meanwhile, nearly half of all renters here in America have been hit with rent hikes in the past 12, 12 months, and nearly 6 million people are paying a monthly increase of at least $100, upwards of $250. And, and, and the Census Bureau recent, recently reported this, that 8.5 million Americans are behind on their August rent, and 3.5 million Americans will likely be evicted in the next two months. People are mortgaging their houses. People are taking out loans just to buy groceries. It's amazing when you really analyze what's happening economically here in our country. And with all of this in mind, we must not fail to recognize the parallel between the political issues which were happening there during the days of Nehemiah and the political issues happening here in America today. People are having a hard time getting grain on the table. People are having to work two, three jobs just to, just to earn a living, just to keep up with the rate of inflation and taxation. 
And, and while I realize that there are many who would rather just avoid this political conversation altogether, you're even thinking, can I get out of here? You know, maybe I'll just fake going to the bathroom and head to the car right now. And yet it's important for us to understand that the Bible actually addresses these political issues. And so if you want to be taught the whole counsel of God, this is a very important study for us here tonight. Now, as we consider this political conversation, you know, the, 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 it's, it's important to understand that the word politics, you know, it's become kind of a dirty word, almost, almost a curse word in some circles. But it just finds its, Latin, uh, its root in the Latin word politicus, which means citizens, or, or, or a reference to the state. Uh, and this Latin word comes from the Greek word politikos, uh, which refers to just simply the policies put forth by government leaders as they manage the civil issues of the state. And, and being that you're citizens of this state, you should be interested in what's happening, happening politically because those political decisions impact you impact me, impact our, our savings account, impact you know, our ability to earn a living. Furthermore, I, w- I would just point out to you that God is the one who invented human government. If you don't like talking about human government, you don't like talking about something that God invented for us. So we should be interested in politics and we should be interested in what's happening here within our government. And, and furthermore, we shouldn't be surprised by the fact that the Lord has actually provided us with a biblical basis for understanding what good government actually looks like. To prove my point, let's consider the political leadership of Nehemiah. And with this as the focus, let's back up. Let's take another look there at verse 6. Here, Nehemiah declares, I became very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. He, he, he was angry. He was filled with righteous indignation as he learned about the way in which the leaders there in Jerusalem were abusing their political power and using it in an ungodly way, putting t- tax, uh, you know, taxation on people, burdens that they couldn't bear. And so rather than remaining silent for fear of you know, offending people with his political opinions, Nehemiah became angry. He was filled with righteous indignation and he rebuked the unrighteous rulers right there in Jerusalem. With this as the focus, let's turn our attention back to Nehemiah's account found here in chapter five. We'll pick up our study beginning at verse seven. Here Nehemiah declares this. He says, after serious thought, I rebuked the nobles and rulers and said to them, each of you is exacting usury from his brother. So I called a great assembly against them. And I said to them, According to our ability, we have redeemed our Jewish brethren who were sold to the nations. Now indeed, will you even sell your brethren? Or should they be sold to us? Then they were silenced and found nothing to say. And here in these verses, we learn about the way that Nehemiah rebuked the, the nobles and the leaders, the rulers there in Jerusalem. And, and, but before now, we consider the way that he rebuked those unrighteous rulers I want, to, I want to take a moment just to notice three important words that, uh, that are found there uh, in, in the beginning of verse 7. It's there where Nehemiah declares this. He says, after serious thought. After serious thought. In other words, Nehemiah didn't rush out and start rebuking people from a state of emotional excitement. And, you know, when I see people just all kind of worked up with emotional excitement regarding politics, I tend to just kind of start backing away from it because, you know, I'm not interested in your emotions about this. We need to sit down and have some serious thought 
about what our beliefs are, what our positions are, and, and whether they're biblical or not. It's one thing to, to have the anger like Nehemiah had. I mean, I, I'm not suggesting that we should never be angry. Certainly, there are things that should make us angry when it comes to politics. But Nehemiah was wise enough to, to take that anger, set it aside, and engage in some serious thinking about these issues. So was he angry? Yes. He was disturbed by the political decisions of the nobles and the rulers. But rather than just going off half-cocked, Nehemiah spent time in serious thought as he considered the, the proper response to this political situation. And after spending time in serious thought, you know, Nehemiah then went and rebuked the nobles and rulers with a very rational response to their policies. Notice again there in the middle of verse 7 where Nehemiah declares each of you is exacting usury from his brother. Or in other words, they were providing loans to those who couldn't afford the cost of living. Uh, you know, so they make these political decisions to, to increase you know, the cost of, of, of everything. Uh, then people can't afford it, so now they have to take out loans. And then they turn around and they give a loan and then they say, okay, so here's, here's, here's your interest rate. It's 55%. Yeah, that's incredible. They, they, were, they were scamming people. And, and they were getting rich. The rich were getting richer uh, off of this usury. You see, when the people failed to repay their, their loan that they, they couldn't afford in the first place, well, then their children became indentured servants of the ruling class. And in light of this practice, I want to consider how Nehemiah challenges them there in verse 8 by declaring, according to our ability, we have redeemed our Jewish brethren who were sold to the nations. Now indeed, will you even sell your brethren? Or should they be sold to us? And then they were silenced and found nothing to say. Yeah, they were shamed. They were shamed into silence because one brave man came with a very rational line of argumentation and presented it to them and just said, is this what you really want to do here? Is this, is this your plan to enslave your own people just so you can have more money? The political leaders there in Jerusalem knew that they were guilty. They knew they were guilty of exploiting those in need. And not only that, but they were also breaking the law of the Lord. There's a few verses I could appeal to, but one is found in Deuteronomy chapter 23. It's verses 19 and 20, where Moses writes, You shall not charge interest to your brother, interest on money or food or anything that is lent out at interest. To a foreigner you may charge interest, but to your brother you shall not charge interest, that the Lord your God may bless you in all to which you set your hand in the land which you are entering to possess." From this, we can see that the, that the people of God there in the land of Israel, they were forbidden from engaging in usury by charging their kinsmen with interest on a loan. That being the case, you know, Nehemiah is saying, hey, what you guys are doing here, it's not biblical. This is something that God told you not to do. And so he rebuked them for it. And not only that, but he, but he also challenged them to repent of this practice. And with this as the focus... I want to draw your attention there, beginning at verse 9. Here, Nehemiah goes on to declare, what you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the repro reproach of the nations, our enemies? I also, with my brethren and my servants, am lending them money and grain. Please let us stop this usury. Here in these verses, we find Nehemiah challenging the ruling class there in Jerusalem to repent of this usury. And, and we must not fail to notice that the basis for this rebuke was first biblical, 
He, he appeals to the fear of God, and, and of course God has already told them there in Israel that they can't you know, charge interest to, to one another. So, so the first basis of this rebuke is biblical, as he encourages them to walk in the fear of the Lord, but then he encourages them to repent of their, their usury for the, for the sake of the nation, for, for the sake of their brothers and their sisters in, you know, uh, in the Lord. Nehemiah was encouraging them to realize that the economic ruin of the nation would also be their own downfall. And as a result, they would all end up being <clears throat> enslaved once again. Now to sum all of this up, you know, uh, Nehemiah was encouraging them, put God first by obeying his word, and secondly, establish political policies that would secure the well-being of the nation. God first, nation second. Very simple. Seems like a very simple political plan. Put God first, and then, according to God's word, secure the well-being of the entire nation, not just some in the nation, not just the wealthy. And, and this is a plan that the Lord has promised to bless. I like the way that the psalmist put it in the 33rd Psalm. It's there where he declares, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Yeah, before we start thinking, well, this was, this was true of Israel. You know, this was true of, no, just blessed, blessed is any nation whose God is the Lord. The nation that allows God to be the Lord of their entire political system will then benefit from the blessings that he pours out on those who walk by faith with him. This was precisely the point that President John Adams was making when he declared this. He says, suppose a nation in some distant region should take the Bible for their only law book and every member should regulate his conduct by the precepts there exhibited. Every member would be obliged in conscience to temperance, frugality, and industry, to justice, kindness, and charity towards his fellow men, and to piety, love, and reverence toward Almighty God. What a utopia, what a paradise would this region be. Incredible. The second president of the United States of America was completely convinced that the nation that will abide by the instructions that we find in God's word will become a utopia and a paradise. The same sentiment was shared by Patrick Henry, the ratifier of our Constitution, uh, this founding father who once declared, it cannot be emphasized too strongly or too often that this great nation was founded not by religionists, but by Christians, not on religions, but on the gospel of Jesus Christ. For this very reason, peoples of other faiths have been afforded asylum, prosperity, and freedom of worship here. Grasp that for a moment. Patrick Henry was informing us that the biblical principles of Christian charity is what allowed our nation to actually become a refuge for those seeking asylum from the tyrants in other areas of the world, regardless of their religion or, or, or beliefs. In this way, we can actually see how the nation that allows God to be the Lord of the, uh, of the political system, the nation that will then begin to apply the, the principles of Christian charity, will then also become the nation that's able to bless others 
with the blessings that we've received. With that being the case, we ought to be praying to, uh, you know, to the Lord to raise up political leaders like Nehemiah. Would it be to God that, that we would have a Nehemiah come along and just start rebuking you know, the unrighteous rulers and, and setting up a, a true you know, biblical way to uh, govern the people? We should pray for political leaders who have bowed their knee to the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. We should pray for political leaders who want to make sure that we are, in fact, one nation under God. And we should pray for political leaders who are ready to rebuke uh, those who, uh, you know, continue to amass great wealth to the, to the detriment of, of those that they're overcharging interest uh, for loans. And we should rebuke, you know, we should uh, pray for leaders who will rebuke, you know, political rulers who are amassing great wealth while pretending to be public servants. With this in mind, I want to continue to consider how Nehemiah challenged the ruling class there in Jerusalem. If you would look with me here at Nehemiah chapter 5, we'll pick up our study at verse 11. Here, Nehemiah declares this. He says, restore now to them even this day their lands, their vineyards, their olive groves, and their houses, also a hundredth of the money and the grain, the new wine and the oil that you have charged them. So they said, we will restore it and will require nothing from them. We will do as you say. Then I called the priests and required an oath from them that they would do according to this promise. Then I shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out each man from his house and from his property who does not perform this promise. Even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, amen, and praised the Lord. Then the people did according to this promise. Now here in these verses, we find Nehemiah requiring the rulers to restore the wealth that they had acquired by usury. And after they promised to restore all this ill-gotten gain you know, to the people that had been exploited, Nehemiah then, then went on to call upon the Lord to, uh, to, to punish the political leaders who failed to fulfill this political promise. And he, he called the priests to come in and engage in the religious accountability uh, of this obedience. And I point that out just here for a second because, you know, there's a lot of Christians who take this uh, line of argumentation that, well, I'm not trying to elect a pastor. Well, Nehemiah wasn't acting as a pastor. Nehemiah wasn't a priest. He was a political uh, leader. And then he called the priests to come in and take care of the religious, the, 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 the religious aspect, of, uh, uh, aspect of this decision. And, and so I'm not suggesting that we have to go find a pastor to, you know, vote for. But we most certainly need political leaders who bow their knee to the Lord. We should be praying for political leaders who are ready to, to investigate uh, every career politician here in our country. You know, there are career politicians who got rich working in the political system. And listen, I'm not talking about, you know, those who were independently wealthy before taking office. You know, because there, there are those people as well. And I, and I get that. It's like... You know, people can have wealth before political office. And, and, you know, certainly, I think, you know, there needs to be higher accountability with our government officials. But, man, there's people that, you know, they, they, they were in debt when they took political office. And, and now they're millionaires. Wait a minute, you're, you're a public servant. How'd you become a millionaire? Well, I'm not here to try to explain this, but uh, 
I would suggest that if you know the IRS is gearing up to investigate anybody right now, it ought to be the political leaders who came into office a little on the broke side, and all of a sudden, you know, after a few years, they're millionaires. They have several properties. What, what happened here? These people need to need, need to be investigated because I can assure you that there are many here in America, on both sides of the aisle, who are using their political position to acquire ill-gotten gain. Meanwhile, you know, people in the real world are, are struggling to put grain on the table, struggling to pay their second mortgage, taking out loans for food. With that being the case, I, I want to take a moment to consider the way that, that Nehemiah led by example. And so if you would, let's pick up our study of Nehemiah chapter 5, beginning at verse 14. Here he declares, moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year until the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the governor's provisions. But the former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine besides 40 shekels of silver. Yes, even their servants bore rule over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. Here in these verses, we find Nehemiah reminding his readers about the 12 years that he ended up spending serving the people of Judah as their governor. And knowing that the governors before him had taken advantage of their political power and position, Nehemiah decided to lead by example by rejecting the governor's provisions. Apparently, there was some stash of provisions that were afforded to the governor and all of his servants you know, every month. Nehemiah wouldn't uh, receive any of that. And in this way, he was doing what he could to relieve the people there in, Ju- in Jerusalem from the you know, unreasonable taxes that the rulers before him uh, were re- requiring of the people. And as we consider his example, we must not fail to notice that the political decisions of Nehemiah were based on his fear of the Lord. As a matter of fact, notice again there in verse 15, here again, Nehemiah declares, the former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine besides 40 shekels of silver. Yes, even their servants bore rule over the people, but I did not do so. Why? Because of the fear of God. Because of the fear of God, Nehemiah was a righteous ruler. Because of his reverential respect for the Lord. Nehemiah refused to take advantage of his political position and power. You see, Nehemiah understood that he would one day give an account to Almighty God. He recognized that there would be a a day when he would stand before the King of Kings and give an account for how he ruled over the people of God. And with that being the case, you know, his political decisions were made under the shadow of the fear of God, the reverential respect that we should all have for the Lord. And as a result, the people of God rejoiced during the days of Nehemiah's leadership. The people were blessed because they had a ruler who was making political decisions that were in line with the truth of God's word. And this reminds me of a statement that King Solomon made in Proverbs chapter 29. It's there where he declares, when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when a wicked man rules, the people groan. When those who fear the Lord are in positions of political power, the people end up enjoying the blessings of the Lord as the leader rules in the fear of the Lord. Conversely, when a nation is led by those who don't fear the Lord, the people groan. The people groan as politicians abuse their political power for personal gain. Meanwhile, the people suffer. 
And as we consider this truth, this political truth that we find in Proverbs chapter 29, the question that we ought to take a moment to ask is this. Are we rejoicing or groaning? Which one? Because the Bible says when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. When a wicked man rules, the people groan. Are you rejoicing or groaning? I'm not telling you how to answer the question. I'm just, <laughs> just wanting to know, you know. Should we take an informal poll real quick? But maybe not. If you're rejoicing right now, then, you know, uh, you know maybe, maybe it's that we have a godly ruler in the office. But if the chances are that you're actually groaning, then what does that say about the one in charge? As I look at the polls, the fact is the majority of Americans are groaning as we grapple with the inflation and taxation that's destroying the middle class. And let's not forget that we're currently seeing a spike in crime, which includes 40% uh, increase of murders since 2019. 40%. Spike in murders since 2019. Violent crimes that include shootings and assaults have increased overall you know, over the last couple of years. Suicides among children 12 years old and younger are rising at alarming rates right now. Then there's the fentanyl epidemic, which has gotten so bad that there are many morgues running out of room because they can't keep up with how many people are overdosing from fentanyl. The people of America are groaning, and it's for this reason that I encourage every Christian, we need to be praying for leaders like Nehemiah who truly fear the Lord. But this as the focus, I want to continue to consider the excellent example of Nehemiah. So if you would look with me again here at Nehemiah chapter 5, let's pick up our study, beginning at verse 16. Here he declares, Indeed, I also continued the work on this wall, and we did not buy any land. All my servants were gathered there for the work, and at my table were 150 Jews and rulers, besides those who came to us from the nations around us. Now that which was prepared daily was one ox and six choice sheep. Also fowl was prepared for me and once every 10 days an abundance of all kinds of wine. Yet in spite of this, I did not demand the governor's provisions because of the bondage that was heavy on this people. Remember me, my God, for good, according to all that I have done for this people. Here in these verses, we learn about the way that Nehemiah continued working on the border wall that surrounded Jerusalem. And from this, we can see that Nehemiah was a man who didn't mind getting his hands dirty with a little hard work. And, and not only that, but we can also see that Nehemiah was a governor who understood that a border wall was absolutely necessary for securing the border of Jerusalem. That being the case, I, you know, as we consider how Nehemiah was you just, you know, dedicated to rebuilding this border wall. I can't help but to wonder what Nehemiah would have said to Beto O'Rourke when he expressed his desire to actually tear down the border wall there in El Paso. It's like, what advice would Nehemiah give to Beto? I, I can't say for certain, but I'm guessing that Nehemiah would probably be like, just, just, just stop talking, you know, maybe, maybe just stop talking. But as we begin to you know, consider Nehemiah's example, I want to begin to wrap up this study by just taking a moment to remind you about the overall concept of Nehemiah's leadership. I'll remind you first, Nehemiah was a man that God raised up to establish a godly government there in Jerusalem. And what this means 
is that the best political leaders are those who have bowed a knee to the king of kings. God didn't choose someone else. God chose Nehemiah. Why? Nehemiah had bowed his knee to the king of kings. Not only that, but Nehemiah was also a governor who was seeking the Lord in order to secure the blessings that the Lord promises to pour out on the nation that submits to him. So Nehemiah put God first, and then the, the nation that he was leading second. Nehemiah wasn't taking money from Israel so that he could then send it off to Timbuktu. No, he was taking care of Israel. He was taking care of the people of Judah. Nehemiah was also a governor who sought to lower taxes and tariffs so that the people he was actually leading could be free to enjoy their property and their produce. And finally, Nehemiah was a governor who was determined to provide the people with protection against their enemies. He did this by building a border wall which would protect them from invasion. And in light of his example, we would all do well to ask the Lord to raise up leaders like Nehemiah. Leaders who are ready to rebuke unrighteous rulers who are robbing us through inflation and increasing taxation. And, and we should pray for leaders like Nehemiah who, you know, would help the U.S. to become a nation that's actually under God. You know, we're supposed to be one nation under God, right? At this point in time, we're at least two nations and not under God. We need a leader that's actually going to bring us back into a, a unity under the one God who actually gave the foundations of this nation. We should also pray for leaders like Nehemiah who will secure our borders against criminal cartels who are cashing in on the current border crisis. Time would fail me to even just get into the numbers, uh, uh, the the amount of fentanyl that's coming across the border, the the amount of child trafficking that's happening. It's tragic. We need a leader that will help to secure our nation's borders. And listen, we should not only pray for leaders who want to honor the Lord with the way they lead, leaders who fearfully consider that one day they're they're going to give an account for their decisions. We should also be voting for those leaders that fit this description. Yes, we should be praying for these leaders, but yes, we should be voting as well. This was precisely the point that John Jay was making when he declared this, and I quote him, Providence has given to our people the choice of their rulers, and it is the duty as well as the privilege and interest of our Christian nation to select and prefer Christians for their rulers. The first chief justice of the United States encouraged us to select and prefer Christians for our rulers. And the reason why is because it's the duty and the privilege and the interest of Christians to elect Christian leaders so that they might guide our nation according to the doctrines of the Christian faith. At the same time, it's also important for us to remember that the political revival that took place there during the days of Nehemiah, it was preceded by the religious revival that occurred under the leadership of Ezra. And we must not lose sight of that. Because I think there's a lot of conservative Christians who put the cart before the horse and thinking that, well, if we can just get the right man in the office, you know, he'll fix the country. Nope. Doesn't work that way. It just doesn't work that way. 
you can legislate biblical morality all day long and just have a bunch of people breaking those laws because their hearts haven't been changed. So we, we, we can't think about it as if, well, if we can just have a political revival, then we'll have a religious revival. Nope, it won't happen that way. There has to be religious revival that brings political revival. I truly believe that the only way that we're going to experience true political revival here in our country is if American Christians will, will repent of our political correctness the, the, the sort of political correctness that keeps the church from actually making an impact on this country because we're so afraid of offending anybody or we're so afraid of losing our job or we're so afraid of, of doing anything that would upset somebody so that we get canceled on social media or whatever. That's the mentality that is wrecking this country. We need Christians who are bold enough to go out and proclaim that offensive message that Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. We need to humble ourselves and and submit our lives to the Lord so that he can use us in this way to actually make an impact here in our community. I I like the way that the Lord sums it up in 2 Chronicles chapter 7. is verse 14 where he declares, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now, this is a promise that the Lord was making to the children of Israel, but I believe that the same promise applies to us here today. That if the church would actually humble themselves and pray and seek the face of the Lord and, and turn from that, that, that wicked worldly way of thinking that if I can just fly under the radar long enough, then I won't ever have to risk offending anybody and losing friends over the name of Jesus Christ. We need to repent of that mentality. We need to repent of this idea that we can somehow, you know, be chummy chum with the world and everything will be all right. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. The Lord didn't call us to go and be politically correct so that somehow we can win friends and influence people. He's calling us to be a light in the darkness, salt on rotting meat. And so we need to humble ourselves and realize that the the political correctness of this world is not what God wants from the church. He doesn't want us being lukewarm. He wants us to be on fire for him. And we need to turn from our wicked ways so that we can experience a sort of religious revival that will then bring about a political revival. And as we commit ourselves to the Great Commission, I believe that the Lord will give us leaders here over this nation who will lead according to the truth of his word. With this as the goal, I encourage every Christian, let's make sure that the Lord Jesus is first seated upon the throne of our hearts. Let's pray that God would bring revival to our hearts first. And as the Lord brings revival to our hearts, then he can bring that revival to our church and he brings that revival to our church, then he can bring it to our community and so on and so forth. Let's make sure that we are the ones who are living our lives according to the truth of his word first. And let's make sure that we're proclaiming the politically incorrect message of the cross so that the unbelievers around us might hear it and be saved by faith in Jesus Christ. And as we do this, I do believe that the political climate of our country will begin to change with every heart that's converted to Christ.
Let's pray. Lord Jesus, 